I remember being a child and going to the swimming pool. My, my family had a swimming pool, a kind of a community swimming pool that we went to, and so we'd ride our bikes. My brothers and I would get up early in the morning, and we would ride our bikes to the pool, and we would spend all day at the swimming pool, and then we'd ride our bikes home, and uh, that, that was basically our whole summer right there, uh, for, except for Mondays, I guess, when the pool was getting cleaned or whatever they were doing on Mondays. And so we, we did this often, uh, and it was just the three of us. I'm the youngest of my brothers, if you don't know where I am in birth, or I'm the youngest of my brothers, and so I was always kind of the, the tail of that train. But that means I always got to play up. If you're the youngest in your family, you get to play up. You get to do everything the older kids do at a younger age. It's just the way that that family works. And I loved it because I was never like relegated to doing a lot of the little kid stuff that, that had to be done. But then my aunt had a baby. And my aunt had a baby, and I was probably eight or nine years old when my aunt had my uh, nephew. I might have been, I might have been, I might have been twelve. When, when he came along. And, and this little boy, Christopher, uh, we loved him. He was a, a great little baby, and he liked me. I don't know why he liked me, but you know how babies sometimes choose like a little person and say, that's the little person I like. And so he liked me. So when my aunt would come and visit us, um, all of a sudden I became like his person, right? And uh, aside from his parents, I was his person. And we went to the swimming pool, and Christopher was about two years old. And my life took a dramatic turn for the worse that day, right? So, like, the swimming pool as a, you know, as a 12 and 14-year-old is lots of fun, right? You can go in the deep end and dive and swim, and you're playing all sorts of games. But when you have a 2-year-old, the swimming pool is no longer fun, right? I remember when I had my, my, my children were small, man, all of a sudden swimming became a task as opposed to a joy. And so I had to take Christopher, and they had the kiddie pool at the swimming pool. So you had the, like, the real pool, and then the corner of the real pool, which was what I would call the real, real pool. You know, it goes down to 12 foot deep over in that corner over there. And then you had like this other area. You had to walk across hot concrete, and then you got to this like nine inch deep kiddie pool. And I spent the entire, entire day in the nine inch deep kiddie pool. And I went home that day, and I was frustrated, right, because I was forced to babysit at that, you know, how kids are, right? And so I go home, and, uh, and I'm complaining about it, and I remember that. I remember being stuck in the kiddie pool when there was better things going on. I would look over, and I would see people playing fun games, and, you know, Marco Polo, and Sharks and Minnows, and all the things you can do in the pool. And then I was stuck over in the kiddie pool watching my two-year-old cousin just kind of like walk in the water. Right, that was his accomplishment, was walking in the water. Uh, and, and I realized something in that day, I realized something that was important to me, is that I didn't want to spend my whole life with that. Right? I didn't want to spend my whole life stuck in the kiddie pool. That's not where I wanted to be. But the truth is, when we get into areas of our faith, many of us, that's, that's where y'all have chosen to stay. Right, the Word of God is deep. The nature of God is deep. Who Jesus is is an unfathomable depth of, of understanding and awesomeness. Yet some of us, we've been Christians for 20, 30, 50 years, and instead of plunging into those depths, we look around and we say, I'm just happy over here in this kiddie pool. I'm happy just kind of knowing enough about Jesus Christ to, to know who He is and what He did, and I don't want to know anything more about him today, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to beg you to begin to take seriously the fact that there is more to know about Christ 
and that your job as a follower of Christ is to go as deep as he'll let you go. Right? That, that, that's what you're supposed to do. Go as deep into to who Jesus is, as deep into the character of God as you can possibly go. We, if you have your Bible, we're going through the book of Mark. Open to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to finish Mark 6 today. Um, and we're at, starting in verse 45. Remember, Jesus has just uh, done the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, right? He broke the bread, and all of a sudden this crowd of 5,000 people was able to eat off of five loaves of bread and two fish, and his disciples were amazed at what, what, what happened, right? As they delivered the bread, that there was food for everyone, and there was some left over. This miracle, as I said last week, was so monumental in the mind of all of the disciples that it is the only miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only one other than the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's the only miracle that's in all four of those gospel accounts that are recording the life of Jesus. And so, and so we have this amazingly mountaintop high experience, right? The highest experience uh, of Jesus' ministry at this point has just happened. And this is what happens immediately following it, picking up in verse 45. It says, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000s, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. I'm going to stop there. So Jesus is just fed the 5,000, and he looks at his disciples and says, okay, guys, you get in the boat and head over there, and I'm going to make sure everyone kind of gets out of here, okay? So Jesus is handling getting the crowd gone, and he sends his 12 disciples out on the boat to go to Bethsaida. And I don't know how they thought he was going to meet him. I don't know what they thought the, the meetup plan was going to be, if he was going to rent a donkey and ride around or catch a ride with someone else and go across on another boat. We don't know what exactly was going to happen, but his disciples, obedient as they sometimes were, get in the boat and go. And it says in verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, the disciples, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus does this a lot. He gets rid of everybody, and then he goes and he reconnects with God. Now, if Jesus needs to go and reconnect with his Father, and he is God in the flesh, how much more do we need to reconnect with God the Father? And this, this is not uh, like a super serious point in the passage here today, but Jesus constantly is sending people away so he can have time alone to just get to know more about what the Father is about. How is your day structured to allow that? Right? Are you always among the crowds? Are you always among the people? I have eight people in my house. I always have to count. That's sad. Right? I have eight people in my house right now. There's eight of us uh, in my house. There was nine yesterday, right? And, I, and my kids have random people over. I don't even know who these people are half the time, right? Uh, but there's people in my house. I don't know who they are. There's always a crowd of people in my house. Some of your houses are like that. Maybe, maybe your house is, is empty and you're like, I never have a crowd of people in my house, right? But, but my life is busy. I'm around people all the time. My job requires me to be with people, I don't get to live an isolated life living in a tower somewhere. I have to be around you guys. I get, I don't have to, I get to be around you guys. Right? What, a, what a wonderful blessing that is. And I, and I mean that. I like people. But if I don't structure my day, if I don't put time in my day to get away, to read my Bible, and to pray, it will not happen. It doesn't just magically occur in my life because there is no time for that if I don't allot it. 
And a lot of us, you may not have quite the same busyness around you all the time that I have around me all the time, but you're always busy doing something, right? You always have something going on. You always have another thing to do, whether it's to take care of your dog or to to, to take care of your house or whatever it is. You always have another task on the list. And if you don't make that a priority, you will miss it. And guys, as we look into getting out of the kiddie pool and moving into like the real depths of who God is, you will never make that transition if you don't spend time with God. It's impossible. You can't do it. You, you can read all you want about God, but if you don't spend time with God, you will never, ever make that transition because God is known relationally, not intellectually. Right? Our, our intellect is important. Right? What we know about God is important. But he's known through a relationship, giving and taking. So Jesus sends his disciples away. He goes on a mountaintop and he prays. And verse 47 says, When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. That makes sense. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. All right, so Jesus has just finished his prayer time, and then he looks out across where his disciples are, and he's like, man, they are having a rough go of it, right? The wind is against them, and I, I, I imagine this is like paddling upstream, right? I've never gone out into like open water and tried the whole how to go against the, the wind, but I have done the upstream game in a river before, right? And that's not a fun game. You get in there, and you think you're making progress with the river because you're watching the water and then you look at the bank beside you and the bank is still moving right like it doesn't matter like you're like I'm not making very much headway as I paddle my canoe here to get where I want to be and so the disciples are struggling to get from point a to Bethsaida they're struggling in the process of doing that Jesus sees them and 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 it's interesting like his intention is just to kind of like go by them And so what does Jesus do? He does what Jesus can do, right? He walks on the water. Now, I've tried this game. This is, like I said, I spent a lot of time at swimming pools in my life, right? This is a game that I like to do. It's like, see how far I can walk on water. Now, y'all didn't know this, but your preacher can do this, right? I can do it for one step, right? I run real fast, and then I get right here, and this foot hits the water, and then this foot goes up and bam, I'm, I'm down. I'm on my face, right? My second foot is the problem. My right foot, right, my sheep foot is, is sanctified enough to keep me up. But, but my goat foot just, boom, sends me right into the water, right? That's just kind of how it works when your preacher tries to walk on water. You can try this at home, right? If you get a little swimming pool out there, you just run full speed at it, okay? And you'll, get, you'll probably get that second step as well before you face plant into the water. But Jesus is Jesus. What does that mean? It means he's not like us, right? Like I can run as fast as I can and and feel like I'm making some progress, but Jesus literally is just out for a stroll on the water like it's land, right? Like Jesus like, I'm not going to rent a mule. I'm not going to take a boat. It's just a short walk from point A to point B. And they're like, yeah, there's a sea between us, but I can walk on that. And so he just goes for a stroll across it, and he intends to pass by his disciples. He's like, I'm not getting in that boat because they're not making any progress. Right? They're not getting where they need to be. And so he just begins to walk. And he begins to walk across the water, and it's late at night. Right? This, this fourth watch idea basically means it's like 3 to 6 a.m. Right? It's the dead of night. The sun hasn't made it yet, but it's going to come around soon. But you know before sunrise, right? it is dark out there. 
And so it is dark outside, and Jesus is just taking a little stroll out in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee. He meant to pass by them, it says. But, verse 49 says, When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, this is reasonable, right? Some of you are like, well, ghost, ha, 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 these guys. No, but it's reasonable, right? Because if I, like if you're out in the middle of the ocean, you're on a cruise, right? Because you're all going on the cruise, right? You're out on the cruise, and then you look out, from your little like nice dinner, and then you see me walking on the Gulf of Mexico to you, you're not going to think that's Matt, right? You're going to rub your eyes a few times. You're going to try to figure out exactly what's going on. And eventually, like if I keep walking and it becomes more and more plainly evident that it's something in the appearance of me, you're going to lose your mind. That's what's going to happen. And that's what these guys do, right? They see this form of a person walking on the water and as they look closer they're like this form of a person looks maybe like jesus looked and then all of a sudden they lose their mind they assume that he's a ghost because people don't walk on water we don't do it right that some of these guys were fishermen they understood this but you don't have to be a fisherman to know you can't walk on water right you just have to not be an idiot right and so and so these guys look out there and they begin to be terrified seeing Jesus walking on the sea. For they were all terrified, verse 50 says. But immediately, right, Jesus sees their fear, and immediately he speaks to them. And he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, there's a couple things about this that I want to point out to us, right? Jesus walks on the water. His disciples see him. They're freaking out. He says, guys, it's okay. It's me. Right? He says, it is I. That's, that's who it is. It's me. It's okay. And he gets into the boat with them, right? And, it's, and then all of a sudden, like the problems, the wind that had been against them, the things that had kept them from making progress like they wanted to, was gone. And they get on over to the other side. And everything's okay. But, but in the middle of this, at the end of this story, actually, right, it says they didn't understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened, right? The miracle before it perplexed them. They're like, we don't understand how Jesus can do this miracle because their hearts were hard, right? And Jesus is, is saying, look, like, I can do all of these things. I can do this miracle with this food. I can do this miracle by walking on water. And his disciples don't get him. They understand pieces of who he is. They understand a little bit about who he is and what he's about and what he's doing, but they don't really understand the fullness of what he's going to do. And they don't understand exactly what he is. Instead, he's kind of a mystery to them. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. He's a healer. He can do these miracles that's never been done in the history of the Bible can do all these things. And so at the end of it, they're like, we don't really know who this guy is. Their hearts are hardened. And this picture like sometimes points us back to the book of Exodus. Or if you hear the phrase, heart is hardened, oftentimes we think about Pharaoh uh, during the time of the Exodus. Really, though, when I think of this, hearts are hardened, the idea is like their understanding, the heart was the seed of understanding in the ancient times, right? their understanding was dull. They couldn't quite get it. They weren't ready for it. And a lot of us, we're, we're like that. Our understanding is dull. We don't fully get what God is about and what he's up to. 
But Jesus walks on the water. There's a couple things that Jesus is doing for his disciples there. Right? They know him as this person who does these amazing things. But he's doing two things that's really noteworthy. The first thing is he's walking on water. Now this, this seems pretty awesome just by, on the face of it. But the second thing is that it, that, that it points us way back. And I was meeting with my, my group of guys who I work with and I, and, I, and I do some preaching stuff with. And one of the guys pointed out, you know, this idea of Jesus on the water points all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You remember Genesis chapter 1, there is no world, or the world is kind of this voidless form, right? And waters over the surface of the deep. And it says the Spirit of God hovered over the void. Right? The idea is that, that, that God hovers over the water. And Jesus is doing that exact same thing to his disciples, right? He's hovering over the water, basically trying to point them back and say, hey, that thing there, that's me. Right? Like the God who, who hovers over water? I'm doing it right now. Like, that's what I'm up to. Right? But it's not just that. The other thing he does is when he introduces himself to them, he uses a very specific phrase, right? right? He doesn't say, hey, guys, it's Jesus. Right? He says, it is I. It is I. Now, now this, this phrase, like, in, in English, is, seems, like, kind of backwards. Like, hey, guys, it's me is how we would say that. But, but it is I. And what that phrase is, like, if you, this is in Greek, just in case you didn't know, the Old Testament was translated into Greek during the time, well, it was before the time of Jesus. And that book was called the Septuagint, all right? And it's abbreviated, if you ever see it, it's LXX, that's Roman numerals for 70. But, but in the Septuagint, when God introduced himself to Moses, like the words that God used, I am that I am, that phrase, the, 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 the Yahweh phrase, when Moses says, when he's speaking to the burning bush, who should I say sent me? Right, who, 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 what is your name that I can tell the people so they'll follow me? What, what is your name? And God says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. That phrase is translated, it is, it's literally the exact same Greek word that's in the Septuagint for when God speaks to Moses, is the exact same words that Jesus is using to his disciples. Right, he's pointing them back. He's like, hey, you know how the Spirit hovered over the water? I'm doing it. And you know how God spoke through the bush and the name that he used? Like, I'm, I'm claiming that name. But his disciples, they, they didn't get it. See, they were so trapped in the moment, they didn't see the big picture that was going on at that time. And there's going to come a time, not very far from now, that they're going to get it fully. They're going to understand that Jesus is not just some dude who does good things. He's not just some guy who can do miracles and and is a good teacher, and is good to be around. No, he is something altogether different. You know, when we get into what Jesus is, it becomes very complicated. I mean, not, not like a little complicated. I mean, very complicated. We, we use words to describe Jesus uh, that are not words that we use for anything else. And they're words that a lot of us don't know. And one of the reasons we don't know those words is because they've been dry and crusty and they're things that you think some seminary professor made up once upon a time so that he could test you about your bible knowledge but there's some really neat things about who god is in jesus christ and those things are found through study of scripture and then putting it together in a systematic way right i took systematic theology and in seminary it was a i don't know it was three semesters i guess that i had to take systematic theology uh, and the idea of systematic theology is God is this, and then we try to understand all that we can in our limited understanding 
about who God is. And that is a challenging task. Right? Because there's a lot to know about God. God is like us in some ways, and he's not like us at all in other ways. And we have to figure out how to deal with all of those things. Guys, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Don't settle for Sunday school, children's Sunday school level knowledge about God. There's a reason we tell children the Sunday school stories that we tell them. They're good. They teach truth about who, 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 who the God is and then who Jesus is and what they do in the world. But they are not exhaustive of, of our faith story. There is so much more to know. And a lot of us, we've been very, very happy to stay with a good children's Sunday school mindset. Like, I can tell you about Noah, I can tell you about Moses, I can tell you about Jonah. Those are the three guys I like to talk about, so we'll talk about those three guys. But there is so much more to know. right? There's something to be known about the fact that Jesus is God and man at the same time. And that that is, is, seems contradictory. right? That he's 100% God and he's 100% man, but that's 100% true. Right, that contradictory or apparent contradictory thing is something we have to go into. Right? We need to accept it on faith, and then we need to pour into it with our minds. How is this work? How does this, how does this, how is this accomplished? That's what the disciples are dealing with, that mystery. Right? The mystery of how God and man are blended into one entity is the mystery the disciples are dealing with. How has this happened? And they're astonished and their hearts are hardened. But guys, you have such a, a, a leg up on the disciples. The disciples hadn't seen the resurrection yet. Right? The disciples hadn't seen Jesus conquer the grave. The disciples hadn't seen uh, the early church and the power of the early church or the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples don't have any of that record. They're living it in that moment. But we here today, we have an amazing opportunity. We have the entirety of Scripture filled out for us beautifully, bound and leather and smells nice. We have the entirety of God's revelation to us, and we have 2,000 years of people who have faithfully studied God's Word, right? We stand on the shoulders of giants, but some of us refuse to climb up on their shoulders. Guys, I want to encourage you, climb up on the shoulders of some of those giants. Read deeply the things uh, about God, uh, and there's some systematic theology textbooks that I would give you and say, these are good books for you to read. There's some bad people who've written about God as well. And I'd say to steer clear of them. If you have questions about who you can read, talk to me. I would love to have those conversations. But I want you to know there's more to know about God than what you learned in fourth grade. Uh, my son has been having like a running conversation with uh, uh, one of his friends. And basically the, the running conversation is you don't learn anything in school after ninth grade. So school should stop ninth grade. He's in 10th grade now. Uh, so like, school should stop at 9th grade, and then college can pick up, and we'll just do college from there. Right? That's, his, that's his, big, uh, his big thing that he's running on right now. Maybe, maybe homeschool is not going that well. I don't know. Uh, but right, that's, his, that's his logic. You don't learn anything after 9th Some of y'all, though, when it comes to Sunday school, like, you haven't learned anything since 3rd grade. Like, you don't know anything more about who God is since 3rd grade. And it's not that there's like brand new things to be pined out of here, but there are people who have done tons of work already for you. And the work of theologians is good work for you. 
The fact that there are people who have dedicated their entire lives to studying God's Word to tell us the truth about who God is, is good for you because you can start there. Right? When they talk about the Trinity, this, this like incomprehensible mystery of three in one, right? but still distinct, and, and like that mystery of the Trinity, that has been deeply, deeply delved by people who are in large part smarter than we are. We start there. And we learn from there. Guys, some of y'all need to get out of the children's pool. And you need to move into what, where, where the big kids are. You're ready. The disciples weren't ready yet. They were blown away. Jesus is trying to point them to it like, guys, it's okay. It's okay. Right? But then right after this, he gets out of the boat. And they get to the other side. And they arrive in, in, in Gennesaret. Right? And so they get to Gennesaret. And there's a crowd of people. And I love what the, what the crowd does. In uh, verse 54 it says when they got out of the boat the people immediately recognized him right the disciples who have been with jesus their hearts are hard they don't recognize jesus but but this crowd of people they immediately recognized him now they probably recognized just a piece of who jesus was but they recognized him and they went to him and jesus healed people and it was kind of a miracle fest that went on there in Gennesaret. But the idea there is this, guys. There are people among us who will recognize the truth about who God is, and there's people among us who are hard to recognize that. And as Christians, by and large, our job is to make Christ known to the world. That's our mission that we have before us. But one of the ways that we can become more faithful and fervent and excited to do that is if we understand who God is. Some of us, our evangelical zeal is lost, like our, our zealousness to tell people that Christ died for sinners has is, is been diminished because we don't recognize the great mysteries of what Christ did. Right? What, what is the, what's the purpose of sharing that, that Christ died for sinners if you don't understand heaven, hell, eternity? Right? If you don't, if you don't have a good grasp of that, and I was talking, I talked a lot about heaven and hell, I guess, at, at different times in my life. But boy, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that if, if I was to ask you if I did a survey about heaven with you guys right here and said like at the end of the ages when we're in Beulah land or whatever that is, describe it to me. We would have kind of like some general broad brushstrokes, but some of your broad brushstrokes might be absolutely wrong. Right? Because we kind of like we learn our theology from songs. Right? We learn our theology from precious moments figurines. Like We learn our theology poorly. There's more to know, guys. There's more to know. And you've got to get into it to learn it. Like, I can teach you step by step, systematically, I suppose. But like you have to take initiative to want to know the deeper things of God. And I don't mean hidden knowledge that, uh, that isn't available to other people. I mean just plumbing the knowledge that God has given to us already. It's there for us. And when you dive into that, you'll begin to see more and more about who Jesus is. Guys, what the disciples realized in this is they didn't really know Jesus. They, they, and they began to know that they didn't know certain things about Jesus. And, that, and that's the start of wisdom, right? To understand that you don't understand everything where the disciples were at. They're like, we don't really get this guy. Like, he's feeding people with food that shouldn't go that far, and he's walking on water, and he's identifying himself like he's God. We don't understand this. But, that, but that, 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 that statement, that they don't understand it, is a pretty good starting point. 
right? That, that, that they're open to learning about what there is out there. And so, guys, I want to challenge you today. Like, read deeply the Word of God. Some of you have never read the Bible. People have read the Bible to you. You've read pieces of the Bible. You may have favorite parts of the Bible. You've never read the Bible, right? You don't need to dive into a systematic theology textbook. I have a friend of mine who reads those for devotional material. He reads systematic theology for his devotional, right? You don't need to do that. You need to start here, right? Start with this. Get this in your mind. You should be reading the Bible every day, right? I I, I told teenagers this for 15 years. I'll tell senior adults it today. You should be reading the Bible every single day. It's not hard. It's written at like a third grade level. You can do it. Just open it up and read it, right? And I'm not saying to study it and to dive deep into every single word. I mean, just consume God's word. Put the stories in your heart. Like, I have an annual Bible reading plan that I go through, and I just read the Bible. Like, I'm reading four chapters a day, roughly, right? And as I read those four chapters a day, I'm not studying every word. I mark things that I don't necessarily understand so that I can go back and see it, but I'm reading because I'm trying to get God's story deeply into my heart and my head. And I've done this multiple times. And I will continue doing this until, hopefully, till the day I die. Because there's always more for me to know there. If you, haven't, if you don't have a regular Bible reading discipline, you will never know the deeper things of God. You can't do it. Because this is where you have to start. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to open up some textbook somewhere, and you're going to read like, oh, let me read about the hypostatic union. You're going to be reading about the hypostatic union, and they're going to use all these scriptural references that you're not familiar with because you don't know God's word. And like anything else, you have to check what you're being taught against truth. So like if I stand up here and teach you something that's not according to God's word, you should know it. You should have a natural heresy meter that jumps up like, that's not right. I may have shared this story before, but in one of my systematic theology classes, uh, my professor, who is a good dude, was teaching. And he said something that was wrong. He didn't mean to say it wrong. It was like, he said, like, this has always been da-da-da-da-da, whatever, I don't remember what he said. But I'm sitting in the back of the class, because that's the sort of student I was, and and I'm sitting in the back of the class, he says, this has always been like this. And what he said was 100% wrong, because before sin... Whatever he said before the fall of mankind, his statement was untrue. And so I was sitting in the back of the class, you know, like a back row Baptist is good, and I just yelled out, like I didn't even mean to do it. I'm like, that's wrong. Right? Because in my mind, right, I knew what he said was garbage. Now he didn't mean to say garbage. He's a faithful guy, and he corrected himself after correcting me, right? <laughs> but like, Right, right. The idea, though, is you should have that. Like, when, when, if I stood up and I said something that wasn't right, you should have a natural inclination to be like, that's not right. I go to youth camp, and I'll listen to a guy preach sometimes, and youth camp preachers are great, but sometimes they're wrong. They say things, and you're like, nope, that's not right. Right, because they get so excited and they're like, they're evangelists, right? And then they try to go beyond that and they get into some teaching and I'm like, ooh, watch out. Right, but in those moments when that happens, what, what am I doing? I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Bump the person next to me. That's not right. Don't listen to that. Because inside of me, and I'm not some special, like, ultra, I am fairly discerning, but like, I'm not like some supernaturally discerning person, right? The idea is like, when, when something is said that's not right, from God's perspective, I, I can feel it because I know this. 
I understand it. I read it. I love it. And it, and it hits me whenever I hear it wrong. Guys, I, don't, I hope you have that, but you're not going to have it if you don't read this. Start here. So when you want to get out of the kiddie pool, the first thing you do is you read God's Word. And I don't mean read it once and say, done, check that. Like, like I read a, a separate piece uh, as an adult because I was reading through books that I should have read in high school, but I read the Cliff Notes versions, right? And so I just kind of checked that book off. Like, boom, read, checked. The Bible's not the book that you get to check off, right? You read it, and then you go back and you read it again, right? I don't, maybe you have a favorite book that you read multiple times. I don't. Right? This is the only book I read more than once. It's literally the only one. But you should be reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it, keeping your mind in, inside of it so that you, you, you feel it. And then, once this is part of your daily discipline, once the Bible is a part of your daily routine, I want to encourage you to begin to think about those mysteries that have been, been worked on for generations. Those, those troubling questions that people, scholars, have dealt with forever. And, and there are books, and I mentioned before, but systematic theology textbooks, and they are just as boring as the title sounds. Right? Systematic theology textbooks. You pick one of those things up and just kind of start reading section by section through that. Because it will help you understand there is more to Christ there's more to the nature of God. There's more to your wickedness than you understand. And as you begin to learn that, as you begin to look at that, and you look at the cross-references, and, and, and you have your Bible open as you're reading it, you're going to begin to realize, like, my goodness, there is so much about God that I didn't know, and it's been available to me my whole life. Your whole life, this stuff has been available to you. I mean, I think one of the... Uh, Millard Erickson wrote a systematic theology textbook, I think it was written back in the 70s, and it still holds water. Like, it's still a quality systematic theology textbook, and it's 50 years old now almost. I guess it's 40-something years old. Um, but it's available. Like, it, it's there. It's been there for most of our lives, my whole life. So, so pick one of those up. You want some references or some recommendations? I'll give you some of those um, for your purposes. But don't settle for not knowing about who God is. God desires to be known by His children. One of the ways you're going to do that is by reading His Word and reading it faithfully and fervently. The other way you're going to do it is by reading God's Word alongside people who have kind of put the whole broad strokes together. And so when they talk about God's goodness, they look for God's goodness throughout the entirety of Scripture. And you see like God's good in this way, and 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 this way. And it's all lined up for you. I'm challenging you today because, guys, you can do it. You can do it. God is accessible to you to, to know more about him than you know right now. Don't settle for ignorance.